You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Recently, I was in a conversation with a a young man, and um, he struggles with the idea of God. And not that he doesn't believe in God, but just really kind of wrestles with just what that whole dynamic looks like. Um, now, this, just to give a little context, this person you know, grew up with both parents, um, had a pretty decent uh, childhood, love and support. And what I mean by that is, so their questions with God weren't because they've had bad experiences in life. It wasn't that something set them off and, and all of a sudden they, they're denying God's existence. Um, this person's not cynical, not anti-God, uh, just questions his role in things. And the com- one of the comments made was something like this. You know, I hear people giving God credit for all sorts of things. Even like, well, that's a God thing. Or that's, you know, God did this. And the question was, how do they actually know it was God? Or how do they know it just wouldn't have happened anyways? You know, was God involved to that extent? You know, in, did he orchestrate those events? Or was that just kind of life happening? And how do they know? Which is a really good question, <clears throat> and it's, an, it's a fair question. Here's the thing. <clears throat> God never signs his work. You know, you go to a museum, and you look at a piece of art in the wall, and the artist always puts their name. In fact, that's how they can often authenticate whether that's a real painting or not by a certain author uh, or by an artist is by the signature. Very rarely, if ever, have I seen something where God signs his name and says, this is for me. So he doesn't sign his work. So here's the thing. So when someone is cured of, let's just say they're cured of a disease, either something that happens medically, and science can't account for it. The doctor says, we have no idea what happened, but whatever was there is no longer there. We would then, as Christians, as Christ followers, would say, well, God healed them, especially if we've been praying for them. For us, that's an answer to prayer, and we would attribute God's activity in that situation or event. Um, last week, I told the story of one of my students uh, who, uh, who was in a crisis in life, but strangers would give them money, and uh, you know, talking to one person on the one coast in Florida about certain things they wish they had, and then the very next day, a box arriving from the west coast with those very things that they were looking for. So again, when those things happen that are just unexplainable, it's easy for us to say God was involved in that. But what about things that can be explained? So malaria. People die from that in in, in developing countries all the time. But all you need to do is take a pill. It's a very simple fix. Take a pill and you might be sick, but you're not going to die from it. Or sunsets. See this amazing sunset. And what does our mind say? Isn't God amazing? Isn't he creative? Well, yeah, but scientifically we can explain that. It's the light going through the atmosphere. And because it's in the day or in the morning, because it has a little further angles different, it has those reflections off the atmosphere. So we can explain it scientifically what had just happened and why it's doing that. Does that make them any less influenced by God? So, I realize I'm getting into a really deep philosophical topic here. Um, You know, this whole notion of cause and effect and God's activity in our life. But let me just say this. When it comes to my faith, I believe because I want to believe. Now, I think there's a reasonableness to my faith. 
I think there's just too much evidence for all this to be random and arbitrary and an accident. And I'm not also just saying this is blind acceptance to everything, where we just take it hook, line, and sinker. The fact is, I probably have more questions today than I ever have. But I'm okay with that. I guess the older I get, I'm a little bit more comfortable with gray. Um, things aren't as black as white, and maybe I am okay with the fact that the God who created the heaven and the earth, who lives and exists outside of time and space, I may not know everything <laughs> about who he is and how he operates in life, and that's okay. I believe because I want to believe, and because I want to believe, I perceive God's activity in many of life's events and circumstances, even the ones that might have a rational explanation. As we've been looking these past few weeks in the book of Esther, that's very much as how what's, what's happening and how God is operating within that book, within that particular book. The writer, the book of Esther, never references God. Never says, you know, God gave favor to Esther and the king listened to her and granted her request. Nor does it say God caused Haman to, you know, create this evil plan and nor, you know, there's none of that. Contrast that what we see in like the book of Exodus, where the writer there tells us very specifically, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Or you get into the book of Daniel, you know, the whole story of Daniel and the lion's den, and the author there tells us very explicitly, God sent an angel and closed the lion's mouth. We don't see that in the book of Esther. Thus, the task of seeing God's involvement in the story of Esther is left to us. We have to make sense of that, and we have to attribute God's activity in the story. So how was it that Esther was chosen to be queen? Out of all the single virgin women in the, the 127 provinces of Persia, from Egypt to India, how is it that she was chosen? How was it that Mordecai was so well connected to information inside the royal palace? How was it that the king came to actually listen to Esther when she came to make his, his appeal? And why was it that the king couldn't sleep that night between the two dinners when actually the whole thing became, in, became clear as to what was going to happen? How did all that happen? So although God's name was never mentioned, his providential presence is all over that book. What Haman had intended for evil, God turned for good. So as we wrap up this series, today we find ourselves in chapter 8. And the last, remember at the end of our last week, Haman is finally exposed. His plot is exposed by Esther and Haman is killed and he is dead. The challenge is, the problem is the edict that was written is still intact. It still exists. And so for all Esther and Mordecai and all the Jews coming up a few months down the road, everyone can kill Jews and take their property. So we pick up here in verse uh, one of chapter eight. <clears throat> That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, Falling at his feet and weeping, she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. 
Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for... Uh, what we continue to see in this book of Esther, what we continue to understand your activity and uh, what you're doing through these individuals. Father, may we have uh, the ability to learn from their experiences and circumstances this day. Father, help me to communicate what needs to be communicated, and I pray, Father, that people would hear what they need to hear this day. Holy Spirit, speak to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So all the Jews in 127 provinces are now saved. So not only is Haman gone, the edict's been reversed, and in this place a new edict is, is, is installed, um, which I'm not going to go down that path because it actually creates a few other problems for us because now the Jews become the aggressors and actually attack. And it, 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 it's an interesting story, to say the least. But Mordecai replaces Haman as the number two power in the Persian kingdom. And uh, later on in that same chapter, it says this about Mordecai. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And Mordecai, Esther, and all the Jews in Persia lived happily ever after. Didn't say that. I just added that for my effect. But that's that's how the writer kind of portrays it. So it's been almost 2,500 years since this event took place. So how do we to understand this? What are some takeaways and what are some things that might be useful for us today, 2,500 years later? From Xerxes, you're looking at the four primary characters in the story. From Xerxes, we learn we should never overestimate the value of our own importance. Within the story of Esther, we do not see that Xerxes considered himself too important. However, as a general rule, people in positions of power have this very real temptation to think of themselves more highly than they should. We probably can all think of people in positions of power, either currently or in the past, where that would be true. It's not uncommon for the leader of an organization to be isolated from outside influences. You have to go through an administrative assistant if you want to meet with them or talk to them. They don't, uh, they don't plan their calendar. They don't answer the phone. 
there's, they're, they're very much isolated. And in those kind of environments and situations, you begin to think, I'm pretty important. I mean, I've got a secretary. Um, it's funny, back in the 80s, I had a chance to go over to Russia. This is when Gorbachev was still in power. So the, the Russia, the Soviet Union was still intact. Um, and you could always, it's funny, they could put a man on the moon, but they hadn't yet developed the, the multi-phone line system. So you could tell how important a person was by how many they ranked, by how many phones they had sitting on their desk. One phone meant that you were a low-level person. Five or six phones meant that you were very important. It's oddly so. But regardless of how the organization structured, it's reinforced to us that how important we are to that particular organization or to that particular group. It's uh, interesting, though, here in Grace Covenant, as an organization, I mean, we're a church, but as an organization, um, Pastor Farrell, who is the, you know, the senior pastor over all the campuses and primarily the primary pastor at Cornelius, um, after every service, you find him at the door greeting people as they leave. Every service, everyone has access to him every Sunday if they want to. They, can, they don't have to go through anybody uh, to talk to him. And if um, after an event... Those of you know him, what will you find him doing after an event? Cleaning up. He's pushing a broom, folding tables, carrying chairs. He's right in there with us. He's a phenomenal example to me and to all of us of what servant leadership should look like. That we shouldn't be too, we shouldn't think of ourselves as being too important. Here's the thing though, the temptation to think of ourselves as more important is not just for those who hold power. It's not just for those who have position and title. Sometimes it exists for those of us who just have influence over other people. You know who I actually think is the most influential and some powerful person within a church organization? The senior pastor's administrative assistant, because they control who has access to the senior pastor. You want to get on his calendar? Yeah, it's going to be three months. You want to get on his calendar? Okay, how about tomorrow? They control, you know, Kathleen is phenomenal. She doesn't play those games, but she has that potential, and that is a temptation for her to, be, to, to have to deal with there. In any organization, very few people are irreplaceable. We get ourselves into trouble when we think we're more valuable than we are. Here's the irony about that whole temptation. God tends to use the least likely for his purposes. Think about that. With Jacob, um, the story of uh, Jacob and Esau, he literally manipulated his brother to get his birthright. Some people refer to him, he stole it from his brother to get his birthright. And yet the lineage of Israelites comes through him. Joseph, um, another um, son, he was a slave in prison. Not the ideal experience to be the number two in Egypt during a Famine. So he's not the person you would think this would be. David was the youngest. His father literally conspired against him to becoming king because he didn't bring him in with all the other brothers to meet with Samuel. Solomon, he was born from a relationship out of adultery that led to murder. Jesus was born to an unwed mother. Paul persecuted Christians. In fact, many think that he was responsible for the death of Stephen. These are not your characteristic people that you would think that this is who God is going to work and choose through. God, more often than not, picks the underdog. 
So to think of yourself more important, to think of yourself as something and special, you've arrived and uh, now God is going to use you because you're special, that's not usually how God works. So we never want to overestimate the value of your own importance. From Haman, we learn that we should never underestimate the diabolical nature of anger. We learn that when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Since it said that he was upset or mildly miffed, he was enraged. <clears throat> Here's the thing that gets me. Haman had made it. He was the number two person in all of Persia. Fame, fortune, prestige, power, he had it all for his lifetime. He, he, was, he had everything. And yet he let his anger get the better of him, and he overreacted and lost it all. Now, it's interesting. We know that from anger, there's, medically, we can say there's physical effects from when, what happens when we're, we hold anger. I, I looked this up uh, uh, just the other day. From anger, some of the byproducts, headaches, digestive problems, abdominal pain, insomnia. It weakens our immune system. It increases anxiety. It increases depression, high blood pressure, skin problems, heart attack, stroke. It'll shorten your life. All these things as a result of anger. When we hold on to it and we let it occupy our lives too much. <coughs> Relationally, people start to avoid you. Friends, loved ones, even family members. <coughs> Angry people have a hard time holding on to jobs. There's a proverb that says, Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered. So again, there's an irony in this. Sometimes you have every right to be angry. Sometimes what happened to you is justified to be angry over that. Anger is a God-given emotion. Even Jesus got angry. But when Jesus got angry, it was usually under one of two conditions. One, he would get angry at the Pharisees because they were more concerned about the law and keeping tradition than they were about their love and care for people. Or he would get, he, the one time he got angry with those who were desecrating the temple. They were selling um, and making a profit and selling the animals inside the temple courtyard and where he went in and turned over the tables and threw out the money changers. He was angry. <clears throat> Jesus never got angry about what people said or did to him. He would get angry about what was happening with other people, but never about what was happening to him. That's not the case for most of us, is it? Haman, we know as we read the story, his doubt, he got angry, but what happened was his ego and pride that got in the way for him. Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him when he would walk by. He felt he deserved better. More often than not, we get angry because someone has treated us in a way we don't want to be treated. They've said something negative about us. They've treated us in a way we didn't want to be treated. In some way, they've offended us. Or they've taken some action against us. You know, for me, it's they drive in the left lane at the same speed as the person in the right lane, and you can't get by them. Um, or, you know, they steal a complete set when you're playing the Monopoly deal game. You know, you've worked to set up the set. If you ever, have you ever played Monopoly deal? It's a card game. We've, we play, what, 25 times the last few days? So it's, it's uh, yeah, we have compulsive issues so, in our family. So <laughs> they steal your set, and then you get enraged. No, it, um, 
We make a lot of noise, but we're okay. (laughs) But more often than not, when we get angry, when someone violates what we consider to be a personal right, they've taken something from us, they've something that we're owed or something that shouldn't happen to us. And because it's personal, we tend to feel it more deeply and we hold on to it longer. And that's when we find ourselves in trouble. Simmering anger that stays on the back burner has the ability to poison your life if you allow it. Remember, anger is a God-given emotion. It's, a, it's like a warning light in your car. It tells you something's wrong. Something needs to be checked and looked at. It's what we do with anger that becomes critical. If you have trouble redirecting anger or letting it go altogether... You need to talk with someone. Don't underestimate the diabolical nature of anger. We also learn from Mordecai, God honors faithfulness and righteousness. In his time, he will act on behalf of those who seek him. In Esther uh, chapter 2, Mordecai learns of the assassination attempt that's being planned against King Xerxes. And he tells Esther, who tells the king, who has it investigated, and it's learned that this is true, and the two uh, individuals who are planning this are killed. And then that's it. The story moves on. The king doesn't show any recognition or appreciation to Mordecai. You'd think there'd be some kind of reward or some kind of acknowledgement, but there was nothing. Have you ever gone above and beyond for someone and they didn't recognize your efforts? You put an awful lot of time preparing a report and it becomes an appendix at the end of something that no one even talks about. You know, or you spend a lot of time preparing for an event and the event happens and the person appreciates everyone in the room except you and you're the one that actually made it happen. Whatever the circumstance, I think most of us have been in a situation where we didn't feel appreciated, where we didn't, we felt maybe hurt or discouraged or even angry. Why does the lack of appreciation affect us like that? Why is it that it has that emotional effect on us? For me, it's because it makes me feel devalued. Like I don't matter, like, like you don't care that you're not, that what I'm doing doesn't have even recognized, it doesn't even come up on your radar screen. That our work, what we do doesn't matter. Here's the thing is that Paul spent so much time talking to us about our identity and he took so much time talking about in his letters that we need to stop looking to others for our fulfillment. We shouldn't be looking to them for their affirmation, looking to them for our own identity. I love what Paul says in his letter in Colossians 3. He says, and he says this, slaves. He literally starts out his statement talking to slaves. So again, this is not, this is not a role or function where there's a lot of influence and power. But slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. We know that from the rest of the story that Xerxes Xerxes does in fact reward Mordecai. 
He honors and rewards them in a very powerful way. But you know what? That might not be your outcome. You might never get the appreciation you deserve. And in those instances, you need to feel and find the fulfillment and contentment that comes from the Lord only. Now, let me put a qualifier on here. I'm not talking about where you're existing or working in an environment where there is a culture of no appreciation, where it's just almost, it's abuse type of thing. Not physical, but just the sense where they're just taken for granted and they'll just take what they can suck out of you and never think twice about it. That's an unhealthy situation to be in. And if you're in one of those, it may be time to reassess what you're doing and you might, a change might be required. Even if, that's not what, but I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that even in the best environments, even in the best organizations, the best groups, if you're with people long enough, it's only a matter of time until someone doesn't appreciate something you're doing. In those instances, we need to look at, all right, let's do this as unto the Lord and not because of what I get from it. <clears throat> and then you just need to let it go. Lastly, <clears throat> from Esther, we learn that when we are willing to take a stand for God, he will reveal his greatness through our lives. When we say take a stand here, we're not talking about this bold, you know, taking this posture in the face of opposition. <clears throat> That's not what's being referenced here. But rather, it's making a choice to live your life in a way that honors God. Making a choice to live your life in a way that honors God. That's taking a stand for God. See, I'm convinced that the Christian faith has not survived all these centuries because of heroes of the faith like Esther or Paul or others throughout history, these heroes that we would look at. I don't think that's why we've survived the way we have. I think the Christian faith has survived because there's millions, millions of nameless men and women who made a conscious decision to live their life in a manner that honored God. They made Jesus their Lord and Savior. They served others to the best of their ability. <clears throat> and not everyone's story ended like it did for Esther and Mordecai. God's greatness is not always represented in political victories. His greatness is, doesn't always come in the form of deliverance from problems. More often than not, God's greatness is revealed in times of struggle simply because we have the opportunity to experience him in ways not otherwise possible. His greatness is revealed because we are changed in the process. Some of you have been waiting for years for God to reveal himself in your particular situation or circumstance. Second Chronicles tells us, For the eyes of the Lord reigns throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I think the word of the Lord for some of you this morning is don't give up. Don't give up. God is always at work even if we can't see it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again, for your word. Thank you for the lessons we've seen in Esther. Um, think of what we've seen from Xerxes and Haman and Mordecai and Esther herself and uh, what their behaviors inform us, how they inform us today. Father, clearly um, there were times where they were facing these difficult circumstances where they didn't know the outcome. We have the advantage of knowing the end of the story, but when they were going through it, they didn't know. 
They had to choose to persevere. They had to choose to live in the strength that comes from you. Father, my prayer is that for those who are needing strength this day, that you would give them strength. Father, that they may be empowered to persevere uh, in the midst of their particular struggle. Their season of waiting, their season of uncertainty, their, their need, whether it's financial, physical, emotional, or relational, Lord, may they find that solution. But Father, in the midst of that, may they find you. Father, for those who need breakthrough, I ask, Father, this day that may they see breakthrough. Lord, may they see the answer. Just as Mordecai and, and Esther found, uh, came to the solutions, came to the outcome of their circumstance, Father, I pray that we might find that same thing as well. Some of us, Lord, have been waiting for years for some resolution to an issue in our life. Father, may even this week be the week where that happens. And with every head bowed and eyes still closed, I would ask if there's any of you who are struggling with something and are just needing a breakthrough, just if you would look up and let our eyes meet and I could agree with you in prayer and be praying for you in the days ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> Others of you may need to be thinking that you need to give yourself to God's purposes for your life. Your prayer might be that something along the lines that I've been living life on my own terms and I want to give myself to living for him so that you can experience the same type of an encounter that we've been talking about this day. If that's you, would you let our eyes meet? Look up at me and let our eyes meet that I can be praying with you. Okay. Father, thank you again <clears throat> that you... Never stop working on behalf of us. Father, regardless of how we feel, what we see, what the circumstances might look like, we can be confident, Father, that you are at work. Lord, that you have our best interests in mind. And whether we can recognize it or not, Father, we can sleep at night knowing, Lord, that uh, we have not been abandoned. So, Lord, for those who do need a special touch, Father, who need be reminded of that this day, may they encounter you, Father, in a very significant and very special way. That there would be no denying or doubting. For them, they would know beyond any doubt, beyond any question of your activity in their life. There may be more questions than answers, but they can be sure of that one thing, that you are involved in their life. So, Father, we continue to trust you and put our faith in you and our hope and expectations in you. And so, Lord, thank you again for all that you're doing in our lives and what you will do in the days ahead. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.